Welcome to the CEC Report. It's the 31st of July. I'm Robert Bowick and I'm joined today by CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Robbie. In this week's CEC Report, British elite freak over people's champion. ALP take note. And instead of raising the gouge and screw tax, grow the economy. So first, British elite freak over people's champion. The Australian Labor Party take note. Craig, we're witnessing amazing upheaval in British politics as we speak, where there's a candidate for the Labor Party leadership, they're having a, a leadership contest, um, whose name's Jeremy Corbyn, and he is attracting enormous support because he is seen as a genuine person, um, and that's, and, and not just because he is, I mean, he is a genuine person, but it's not just his, his sort of, uh, his personality that's attracting support. Because he's genuine, he refuses to compromise on the principles he stands for. And he, has, he was the, one of the original people, Robbie, that uh, stood up against the Iraq war. Exactly. And also against the war against Syria in the UK Parliament. So he's not just some Johnny-come-lately. He has a long track record of standing up for these principled uh, oppositions to. But what happens is when some he's he's done all that for thirty years from a standpoint of a backbencher. Mm -hmm. When someone gets in the position of contesting the leadership, they're told, "Oh, you've got to appeal to a broad base. You've got to make yourself more electable and things like that." And he's just not interested in that. And um, once he put his hand up to run, people thought he would be the longest of long shots, and he's actually leading. And as a consequence, he's terrifying the establishment. So we're going to talk about him in a bit. Before we do, I just want to contrast that for Australians to what's happening to the Australian Labor Party right now under Bill Shorten. Now, I should say Shorten hasn't started this. Um, he's continuing a tradition that actually began with Hawke and Keating when Labor went away from its roots as a party that fought the what Labor used to call the money power. But you'd have to say that under Bill Shorten, the way I put it, he is consolidating the Labor Party, the ALP, as another Liberal Party, right? And we saw that, Craig, at the um, ALP National Conference last weekend because Shorten ran through a policy change that was justified by the rationale, in order for us to get elected, we have to support Tony Abbott's policy on turning back desperate people. Yeah, poll-driven politics as opposed to policies driving politics. Exactly. The and they got up there and gave speeches about people dying at sea and all that kind of stuff. And, and Tony Burke gave a speech in support of this and you, you almost thought he was trying to make the public feel sorry for him, what he had to go through as immigration minister, right, because of this policy, because Labor didn't have this policy. But now we've got to support this policy. And they say it's about saving lives. It's got nothing to do with saving lives. We've said on here before, John, before anyone died at sea, John Howard said, we choose who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. He held, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of refugees on the Tampa, out in the, he the heat of the sun on the Indian Ocean for weeks and weeks and weeks in order to make an example of them. In order to attract support from the Australian population, who had been whipped up into a frenzy of fear by the Murdoch media, right? And so Labor is doing, is saying, okay, we want to be elected, we're going to follow the same policy. 
right? And, and, and I just want to make that point. It's governed by this idea of, of we have to be electable, right? And anyway, Shorten's a perfect man for that job. We, we, we did a, in our Australian Alert Service publication this week, Craig, which people can call in for a copy of if, um, to the CEC. We just sort of document, Shorten in particular is a guy that you wonder why he's even in the Labor Party. Um, all his friends are liberals and big business guys. He showed as a trade, he was a trade union leader, sure, but the, the Royal Commission at the moment is showing that all his deals as a trade union guy were to benefit the businesses um, and they'd give him kickbacks so that they could pay workers less and, and stuff like that. Um, when he became prominent on the national stage, if you remember, it was around the Beaconsfield mine disaster tragedy, he turned up on the spot before anyone else because he was able to fly Richard Pratt's jet down there and Richard Pratt was the richest man in Australia and the richest donor, the biggest donor to the Liberal Party, right? He's like that. He was like that with um, Bill Shorten. And the more, the most interesting thing about Bill Shorten is he virtually lobbied to, to get the job of leader of the Labor Party. He lobbied the U.S. Embassy for it. He used to go to the U.S. Embassy. WikiLeaks revealed this. He'd go to the U.S. Embassy and give them inside information about Labor politics and tell them what a good leader he'd make to be the leader of the Labor Party, right? And that's that sort of epitomises Bill Shorten, um, but people sort of get used to that. That's that's become what you sort of expect in politics. That's right? poll-driven politics, Robbie. The the point is that real substantive debate about policies that matter yeah. haven't come into the picture yet. Now that doesn't mean it's not. I mean, because what I've been in my discussions, I've been saying to people, you have to realise that Australia has been in some sort of a boom, you know, a speculative boom, for the last twenty years. You've had high commodity prices. You've had high Exports. We've ridden, ridden, you know, we've, we've, we've become, in a sense, prosperous because not just because of that, but because of the deregulation, the financial system, the enormous amount of speculation that's going on. But look, underneath that, we've got a collapse in our manufacturing system. Exports are falling. Commodity prices are falling. So all the parameters that are supposedly held up the Australian economy are falling through the floor. Exactly. Therefore, Australia is headed into a massive depression because our policies are driven towards globalisation, towards supporting the bankers, and our politicians are in positions now because they support those very policies. Yeah, there's no debate on it because Labor is in firm agreement with the Liberals on all those policies that cause that. And what you see in the UK is a refreshing change because the underpinning of their economy is, is a disaster. Well, and therefore the population is beginning to recognise that they need new leadership. No, exactly. We've been there a few times. You, you, you feel that from a grassroots standpoint. Let's just go through what's happened. So they had a general election um, in May. Labor, it was interpreted as a disaster for Labor, an absolute disaster, even though the Labor vote actually increased, Craig, from the election before. Mm -hmm. uh, it increased by more than the Conservative vote increased. But you had this phenomenon of the Scottish National Party, etc. And it was, it was just interpreted, this is a disaster for Labor. And the press all said it's because Ed Miliband, the leader, was too left-wing, whereas his own part, this Ed Miliband, they're calling him too left wing, he had actually pledged to do a, a slightly um, softer version of the same austerity as the Cameron government. He wasn't the worst person in the world, but they were not too left wing by any means. So anyway, he, he resigned and they've got to have a new um, party leader. So they have, a, they have a voting process in the UK Labor Party where three candidates put their hands up. And the problem with these three candidates is they fit the cookie cutter um, uh, template of what a modern politician is supposed to be, and they're all they're all variations on the Tony Blair model of a Labor leader. So Jeremy Corbyn, a veteran but a left winger, 
he's got no ambition whatsoever. He's never had any ambition to be leader. He put his hand up solely in order to have an alternative voice as a possibility, right? Yeah. They had, the first hurdle he had to get over, Craig, was you have to have 35 MPs sponsor you in order to qualify to run. The other three got their sponsors easily. All these MPs had a hard time sponsoring Corbyn. And there was a, with, with seconds to go for the deadline to have these sponsorships, he only had 34. And then one MP was prevailed upon to throw, give him his vote in order to, and the, the rationale was oh, just so we can have a debate in the election, in the leadership contest. So that's how he snuck in. Last week, this was a month later now, last week, Craig, the first poll came out. And what that poll showed is that he, Jeremy Corbyn, was streets ahead of every other candidate, streets ahead. And it's because he, like I said at the beginning, he's not just a genuine guy, he would, did not change anything about himself in order to be this leadership con um, contender. So while this contest, contest has been going on, he's been on the streets of, of London leading rallies in support of the, the people of Greece, for example, over um, debt forgiveness. He's leading, been the, the leading anti-austerity voice. The Labor Party is so pathetic over there at the moment that the Tories passed this anti-welfare bill to slash welfare payments to the poorest people in the UK and Labor said, well, we're not going to oppose that. And he, had to, he and others had to break ranks and go in and vote no when the rest of their party just didn't want to be seen to be against this austerity because they got some twisted idea the public want this austerity, right? Anyway, so um, this poll's come out and shown, like I said, all hell has broken loose. And I just want to show people, just see Jeremy's own, Jeremy Corbyn for themselves and see his own rationale of why he's running. What it's about is converting the Labour Party into much more of a social movement and an awful lot of people have joined the party since the election. We've now got 250,000 members, probably 50,000 signed up as supporters. They all want to do something, they want to change society. So do you think the party today has been too much of a bourgeois party? It's been too close to big business, it's been too close to economic orthodoxy, it's been incapable of offering Labour voters and the majority of the electorate a real alternative and that was the fundamental problem in the last general election. So Craig, you can see by that, he's, he's give, he has no truck with this analysis that Labour wasn't, was too left wing for the election at all. No, right? not at all. He, and this is what he stood for all his life and so he's, he's run on that and the support he's got, 250,000 members of the Labour Party has now over there, most of it um, enthused by having a candidate who actually stands for something and not this power first um, model. Now, the guy that, as soon as this poll came out, the, the freak out started, the attacks on Corbyn started, and they were led by Tony Blair himself. And he had, this is what he said, Craig, he said, if you're, he's talking to members of the Labor Party, he says, if your heart is with Jeremy Corbyn, get a transplant. That's what he said. In other words, you know, this has got nothing about belief and, and, and um, an emotional attachment to principle. We're not going to have power if we follow this guy, right? That's just the, the pure, cold logic. Um, and this is a Tony Blair, Robbie, whose who's friend in the upper house this last week, the Lord, who was in charge of the ethics committee, yes. was just caught snort, snorting cocaine with prostitutes. That, yes, this Craig. Is, this that, is Tony, that Tony Blair. That yeah, Tony that, that, Blair. And, okay. and the Tony Blair who, he's the most despised man in the UK. That's it's actually, that's it's, my point. It's like he it? doesn't. This, Tony, is the, this is your Iraq war, Tony Blair. Exactly. This is, 
So, so, so all he's going to do is he's going to get more support for Corbyn by the from maybe not from party members, but from the public he will. Right? He'll he'll provoke that. Um, so anyway, let's watch another clip because I just wanted. To, this is a guy who calls himself the artist taxi driver. Just it just goes for a minute, and just so people can see some of the enthusiasm that this candidacy is provoking in the UK population. Choo choo! <laughs> the train is rolling. The train is rolling. Finally, finally, there's someone that represents people. People who have been screaming in the wilderness for 30, 40 years. Even more. It's actually, it's actually not even Jeremy Corbyn. It's just the way that, the, that, that they built the system that, that, that we need a representative. This is what they're scared of. Fraser Nelson, Daniel Finkelstein, Blair, Cameron, Osborne, MI5, the Queen, the Holy Goat. This is what they're scared of. In, in, in just a matter of days, Jerry Corbyn, he can transform politics into a popular uprising. You, you know it's happening. So, Craig, you've seen that now. You've, had a, you've led a party for 27 years that stands for a lot of similar principles to Corbyn, actually. We're going to go through that in the next segment. But in that time, you've had lots of advice on how to, you should be electable. How do you see what's happening there and in places like Greece? Well, Robbie, the point is that Jeremy Corbyn stands for principle, and that's what people want to see. They also see that he's trustable. In, in the climate we have today, politicians are not trustworthy. You see it with the Bron Bronwyn Bishopman affair, you know. Yeah. They take advantage of the people, but... You also have to understand there's a principle I always talk about is that people will des people deserve the, the government they're given. They elect the politicians. So you can't have this scapegoat where people say, oh, they're rotten politicians and so on and so forth. The politicians that are there is because of the people. Therefore, what we represent is an alternative. And if people want to change, they have to vote for us in the sense of the policies that we represent and the personalities that we have in our, in our party. Because that, that means real change. And that's the difference. People, in, what you see in the UK is people are showing they want people change. People want change. Yep. And unless that happens from the grassroots, from, from the yep. people, but also from clear-cut leadership, yep. nothing will change. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about actual policies that we have in common. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Instead of raising the gouge and screw tax, grow the economy. So, um, just to preface this segment, the puppet show, uh, as I call it, Craig, has started. Um, last week, the Premier of New South Wales, Mike Baird, came out saying, we need to raise the GST. And of course, what this, this will begin a process, and the whole thing's a charade, because they actually all agree with it, right? Because we, as we discussed, Labor isn't opposed, doesn't represent an opposition to Liberals anymore. They all want the GST raised, all these state premiers, but they know it's going to be difficult. So someone's got to get the ball rolling and then there'll be a lot of hand-wringing, right, over the next coming period. And then, oh yeah, it's kind of been forced on us so we can maintain the services that the Australian people want. It's been forced on us, um, etc. Now, they say that it will raise the revenue, it'll solve the revenue shortfall that is causing the budget deficit. But I want to point out, Mike Baird's a former investment banker, um, and it's what he's proposing is something that's going to increase the burden on the poor and working families who can't avoid this tax. 
in order to make up a shortfall that in many, it largely is caused by the biggest multinational corporations and billionaires who do avoid tax, right? And they've got all kinds of tricks to avoid it. So there are some real alternatives to this that people need to understand. Now we've put up some alternatives before, we've, we've talked about them on the show. There's, there's tax alternatives, we won't go through them, we won't dwell on them today, but first you could raise tariffs, right? Tariffs and excise take a, raise about $30 billion already in Australia. If we actually protected our industries, you could raise a lot more, right? I um, think that's an important point, Robbie. The GST, is, as a proportion of the taxes, is not a huge, significant proportion. No. Company taxes, the indirect taxes, like on the, the tariff taxes and so forth, are a lot larger proportion of the overall tax revenue. So, but what the GST does is that because it is an indirect tax, it's a re re you know, regressive tax, it attacks the poorest, the people who can least afford it. That's what we've already always said. Mm. What you need to do is have a tax that attacks the wealthiest, which means you need to have what we call a speculation tax. But not, yeah, not the worst part, not, not that there's, there's plenty of the wealthy do that's fine. Yeah. Attack the bad habits of the wealthiest. Right. Hence speculation. Which, you know, 0.1% tax on, you know, transfers of, uh, uh, on speculation. You know, that's anything. Share transfers, derivatives, the whole way. And that's now, a dollar in a thousand. A dollar in a thousand. Now people say, oh, that's a lot of money if you're in, in the share market. It's not. Well, the most GST people, is a hundred dollars in a thousand, Craig. So most people very in the share tax. market don't, you know, trade shares every second day. Yeah. Or, you know, through this high frequency trading system where they use multiple, you know, computers and algorithms to be able to shift share price, uh, shift shares trading around really quick. Yeah, a one-off one tax on someone who has shares in a, in a business for five or six years isn't going to be a significant amount. But overall, Robbie, it will ra raise an enormous amount of money into the coffers of the government. $130 billion. $130 billion from latest figures because the rapid-fire trading in currencies and the kind of thing that will be taxed by this happens on such a huge scale that it will raise a lot but of money. this is against... That this is against the financial industry, it's against the bankers, and the bankers control the existing political parties across the entire spectrum. So that sort of a tax is going to be a real fight to get into place, yep. rather than just, again, tax those who can least afford it or have the least voice in, poli in politics. But, but Craig, to be honest, that's not the more interesting alternative. The good alternative, but the more interesting one is, why don't we just grow the economy? Right? Yes, there's a deficit. Grow the economy, that'll shrink the deficit. And there's ways to do that. now. Jeremy Corbyn, if we can refer to the previous segment, one of the things Jeremy Corbyn did last week is he produced an economic manifesto and the front, front and centre of that was he says he will set up a national investment bank in the United Kingdom and he's explicit it will use the term quantitative easing which just means central bank created credit which we've advocated for nearly 30 years, right, it's only recently been called quantitative easing, create the credit to invest in the economy. Right now, so we have exactly the same policy effectively, and we we actually know probably arguably more about it. So let's take a quick break, and when we come back, let's talk about that as a solution to all this. Welcome back to where we're talking about instead of raising the gouge and screw tax, grow the economy. And Craig, what we what we want to talk about now is what we call national banking, right? Um, now, I want to make just, just some figures from this budget. Uh, since the GFC, Australia's, the Australian government's had to borrow a lot of money. So 
you know, it's up to about $300 billion they owe. 75% of that is owed to foreign bondholders. And that means when they pay the interest on that money, $10 billion a year of just interest goes straight overseas, mm. right? If that money wasn't owed to foreign bondholders, if, for instance, there's $2 trillion in super funds in Australia, if, that, if they'd borrowed from that instead, when, they'll, when they're paying the payments on that, that money would stay in Australia and circulate in Australia. And I, I just want to, in Japan, that Japan's the country with the biggest foreign debt in the world, even bigger than Greece, as it's 220% of its GDP, but 98% of it is owed to the people of Japan. So when the Japanese government is making its regular payments, that money stays in Japan and circulates in Japan, right? We have a big problem because we owe such, such a significant amount overseas. So if we had a national bank, the government could, could change that whole dynamic Borrow, you can borrow, I'll just explain some of the sources. A national bank would use the government's own savings, tax revenue, which would, it would keep in the national bank, and while that money is waiting to be spent, it can be put into circulation through loans, etc. It would use deposits from people who want, a lot of people say to us, where, we, where do we put our money that's safe? Well, let's have a national bank and you can all put your money in there if you want it, if you want it super safe. It can use money from investors. Investors would be encouraged to invest in, the, in this bank. Yes, you wouldn't get the, the greatest return in the world, but your money would be absolutely secure. And it can use this created credit to invest in the infrastructure, etc., that would completely um, transform our economy. Well, how does it transfer the, transform the economy, Robin? I think, let me, let me just take an example, which I'd like to use. Think of Sydney without the Sydney Harbour Bridge or a tunnel, yeah. right? This is what Sydney was like back in the 1900s, right? It was, it was very restricted onto the South Shore, right? Bradfield and Lang saw that there was a necessity to expand the economy. How do you do that? Well, you had to link the North Shore with the South Shore, right? Yeah. So they devised a bridge, the only coat hanger bridge of its type in the world. Now, there was no money at that time. So Bradfield and uh, Lang got the money out of London. It was only about $50 million to build it. By today's standard, that's a pittance. Mm. But then think about what would Sydney be like if it didn't have that crucial infrastructure, if it didn't have that bridge, Will we still be shipping goods across you know, the, yeah. um, the Sydney Harbour on barges? It would be a permanent right. suppression of the economy. Exactly right. And Because he also had the Underground Railroad System, the extension of the North, North Shore uh, Railway System as part of that project. But what you see was a massive explosion in the economic potential of the entire Sydney environment. Yeah. And that's what infrastructure does. Yeah, they had to borrow from London because they were a state government, didn't have the power to create credit. That's the great. national government could do that without borrowing if from If it's directed overseas. into the infrastructure, Robbie, like for example, what we talk about, the high-speed ring rail proposal of Lance Endersby. We could be on a train here in Melbourne and in somewhere like Dubbo within you know, three hours, yeah. very quickly, right? We could have a transfer of people, of goods, you could have industry set up in areas which potentially were not possible before because of the infrastructure. Therefore, we have a net increase in economic activity that then increases the, the taxes and the revenues you can have from the government. Because all the money that the government spends on these projects, it all ends up eventually in workers' pockets. If, if it's and internalized. They spend it and they pay taxes, etc. And we have a huge superannuation pool there that's basically in the control of the private bankers to do what they want with it. However, as I said before, we're coming into challenging times here in Australia because the economic model is failing our country. Yeah. And so are the politicians, as we've seen from Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, no, exactly. And 
Uh, but when, when in London of all places, when you've got politicians calling for national investment banks, which will be freaking out Wall Street, you know that the revolution is here, which is great. So anyway, we've run out of time as we usually do. Thanks for tuning in to the CEC Report and tune in next week for more.